Welcome to Fandom Media. And hello, everybody. We're back with episode three of Better Call Saul. Coverage continues. You know, it feels like the season has been going on for longer. Uh, you know, this is only episode three. I feel like so much has happened already. I actually thought it was episode four. Only like three days have passed. Each episode starts right back up where the last one left off, you know? That's a good point. It's not a lot of real time has passed in the show. And as you said, they have a pattern of picking up exactly where they left off. Maybe they rewind maybe 10 seconds. I think it's a neat concept and a neat idea, especially with the way the show does pacing. Mm -hmm. It pays a lot of attention to pacing. It's a neat little device. Meta Elements. If you're enjoying our Better Call Saul reviews, head over to iTunes and leave us a rating or review and help other people find us. This episode was called Sunk Costs, and that refers to a f- the fallacy of sunk costs, which is when you continue to pursue something that you should probably cut bait with. You continue to pour money into something that you should probably stop pouring money into, similar to the concept of chasing losses when you're gambling. You know, you're down a thousand and you want to keep betting until you get even, and that's a fallacy because you're more likely to get more sunk than you are to get back to where you were. You've put so much into it already, you feel like you have to recover it, where you could just gain more doing some totally different activity. Right, and Kim brings this up at the end of the episode specifically, says, oh, just chasing sunk costs, right? And, you know, she kind of shrugs it off, but I think deep down she realizes that it might be true that she probably this is probably what's happening but she's loyal to Jimmy and that matters a lot. And I think it's true of the other characters in the episode as well from Jimmy to Chuck to Gus and Mike honestly. Yeah, you're totally right. Chuck is continuing to go after his brother and he's hurting himself in the process and damaging his relationship with him severely, perhaps permanently, and Mike just won't give up on Hector. Yeah. And we know how that's going to play out for most of those characters. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> As we get closer to Breaking Bad, these characters get closer to Breaking Bad. <laughs> <laughs> so this episode had a lot of different actors and characters in it that we hadn't seen before, or that we had seen before quite a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, new old characters. One of the not old characters was this judge. She was really, really familiar to me, so I want to point out who she was. She's played by Molly Hagen. She's been in the movie Election, you know, from like... The 90s. With Matthew Broderick? Yes, with Matthew Broderick. She was the cooking teacher in Friends that teaches Monica how to cook when she already knows how to cook. <laughs> and she was Sister Roberta in Seinfeld. That's the, the one that got me. That was really funny. I love that. <laughs> it's like, ah, oh, who is that? And you and looked it up and said, Sister Roberta from Seinfeld. I was like, ah. Most recently, I know her as one of the main characters' mothers in the show Jane the Virgin. Right on. So she's been in a lot of things. We also have Jeremiah Bitsui. Uh, maybe that's not how to say his name, but mm, close enough, hopefully. That's Victor. And he was the young Native American kid in the snake scene of Natural Born Killers. Nice find, Shay. That blew my mind. Tyrus Kitt is the character in Breaking Bad that takes over for Victor, and he's played by Ray Campbell. He was in a the background there with a the scene in Gus and Victor when they were meeting with Mike. I didn't even notice him the first time that we were watching in the background. I was just more distracted by what was going on, that Gus was showing up. But the second time I saw this face in the background, I was like, that, that's Gus's man. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what I did too. And that's a good thing for us to point out. Here at Fandom Media, whenever we review a show, we watch it at least twice. The first time we watch more as fans, the second time we watch more as analysts. Between the three of us, we are able to pick up a lot of different things, and that's fun, and uh, we'd like to present that to you guys. And we also saw this doctor that Mike goes to, Dr. Barry Goodman. Hey, that's like Saul Goodman, played by J.B. Blank, and this character was actually in Breaking Bad, yet another character. He's the one that Mike and Gus go to after Gus is poisoned and Mike is shot during that attack on the cartel. 
We also noted Kimberly Bear Gregory, who played Kyra Hay, and she was the out-of-town prosecutor that they're using. To... Tough cookie. Tough cookie, right. <laughs> Tough but fair. <laughs> Apparently she's a main character in the show Vice Principals. That's a comedy with Danny McBride, an HBO show. Right Danny on. McBride cracks me up. Narrative. One of the things that Better Call Saul and Breaking Bad does really well are these kind of mysterious, atmospheric opening shots that they have. And a lot of shows, those would just set the stage for what we're going to see. But in Better Call Saul, this is actually a flash forward and something that gives a lot away about what's gone down in many month period of time. Yeah, it's a really great visual storytelling. As at first, it's a little confusing. We're not sure what we're seeing. You notice bullet holes in the stop signs. You know that you're in Mexico because the stop sign is in Spanish. And you know that there's not much around. It's a wide open space. There's no civilization nearby. It's really wonderful how it all comes into picture and you figure out what Mike is doing. And we talked about it while we were watching. Like, what's going on here? What's the thing? It's like, oh, and as, as, as realization dawns, it's just so cool. And this is one of my favorite things about the show in general is Mike's really clever schemes you know the, uh, for lack of a better word his aptitude for this sort of thing is i don't even know what to call it this sort of thing his mastermind yeah just yeah. masterminding uh, understanding how the law works getting people caught just manipulating the system from the back end uh, all these different things i could throw out to describe it none of them quite fit but i think you understand what i'm talking about i also like how they write this they definitely write things with this big picture in mind. In Breaking Bad, there were a lot of times that a scene would happen that seemed out of place with the episode that, like in this one, by the end of the episode, you kind of piece it together. But sometimes it wasn't until three or four episodes or two or three seasons later where this scene comes together and you realize how it all fits. I think one of the most iconic ones from Breaking Bad is, of course, of the pink teddy bear eye in the pool. In the and pool, you, yeah. You see a little bit of it, you know, slowly but surely until it all comes together and clarifies for the viewer. Yeah, it was really neat when he's looking through his scope and constantly pointing it at these two truck drivers and you wonder if he's going to shoot them. But really, he's just keeping an eye on them. He's That's yeah. his basically his binoculars. And he's shooting up into the air and you're like, what is he doing? And it's, it's pretty neat to see the way the system works on their end. They can't be without guns because they're hauling huge amounts of drugs and there's clearly, as Mike is an example, people who would like to disrupt their shipping lanes and take them, which of course is what happens. Gus has taken the shipping lane from Salamanca and they have to deposit their guns though because they obviously can't cross the border into the U.S. with a bunch of heavy weaponry. And so Mike has found this spot where they make this swap and shooting the shoe to drop the drugs on the top is just so clever. Yeah, I thought it was really great how he was shooting the gun just multiple times just so that they wouldn't be paranoid by the time that he actually does shoot the shoe. Yeah, there there's clearly no bullets hitting near them. So it really yeah. is like, wow, that must be long away. You know, we're lying Just a here. shot in the distance. Of course, it's scary at first. But after it happens a couple times, there's no threat. Move on with your day. Yeah. One thing I was looking at was the alto sign because at the very beginning, we see a bunch of gunshots in it. And at this scene, when we see Mike here, there are no gunshots in the alto sign, but at the end of the sequence, there are maybe a couple, which points to me towards the idea that maybe 
this has happened multiple times, but that kind of started not making sense to me because how can he do this scheme again? How can he shoot the shoes again and let out more drugs? There's only one hole in the shoe. There's only one pair of shoes, and it doesn't make sense for him to shoot near them if the whole idea is to pretend that the gunshots are far in the distance. So I was puzzling over that too. I wonder if maybe there wonder- had been more battling over the spot. Or I think just people shoot at stop signs just for target practice. Like I just the, think it's a thing that happens out the, in the middle the of the border desert. sign had bullet holes in it from the beginning. Like, yeah. Even at the start. I still think it's notable that Mike gets there. There are no bullet holes. He does this plan. There are a couple of bullet holes. The flash forward we saw has many bullet holes in the sign. I feel like that says something about it. Whether maybe something more went down here after the fact. That's what I'm thinking. Maybe he could at least do it one more time. Because it's two shoes, he could do one more plan. (laughs) There was new shoes thrown up there. It can't be that, that, though. I I looked. There was only one bullet hole in the shoe. And he only stuffed drugs into one shoe, not both. So, yeah, that yeah. can't, that doesn't work. I don't know. So that maybe, like you said, they sometimes give us these things and then reveal it later. Yeah. Maybe, like, this doesn't seem like they're going to come back to this. It seems like this little subplot is done in terms of this particular truck setup. But maybe we'll learn more. But I agree. Maybe if anyone out there has any ideas or thoughts on what these extra bullet holes might mean or signify or symbolize, hit us up at fandommedia.reviews. Leave a comment on this episode. Before we actually see this play out, out on the road, Mike goes to a doctor's office. And this is a really, really funny scene in a number of ways. It starts out with the doctor asking, what does this one have? The revenge. (laughs) (laughs) Which is awesome. And that that scene, like a lot of Better Call Saul scenes, is nice and paced out. You get to see the doctor. You can see this is a good guy. He's helping a lot of people. Oh, but he also works for Gus and he's dealing drugs. You know, it's really, (laughs) and there's chickens out there. And it's like, it's a very rural doctor. And I think that's really neat. I really liked the revenge line because not only was it hilarious, but it made me think about how true that was of all three of our main characters right now. Jimmy and Chuck, that is what is guiding them at this moment is revenge. Yeah, they both want revenge on each other. And of course, Mike, as we saw in the scene before this with him, is talking to Gus about Hector Salamanca, who they both want revenge on. Interestingly, Gus doesn't exactly point this out. He says, it's not in my interest for Hector Salamanca to die at this time. So it's like a nod to Breaking Bad. We know he wants Hector Salamanca badly, but he is waiting. He is biding his time. He lets Mike believe it's just about a territory thing. Right. He doesn't want anyone to know about this. His revenge, he holds this very close to his heart. His yeah, this is an emotional plot. weakness of his, for sure, that someone could use. Yeah, so he does not want anyone to know about it. And I think that's part of what's compelling to him is that he sees the same thing in Mike. Mike's not trying to hide it, though. Mike's like, actually, wait. I'm not done with Hector Salamanca. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so presumably they work together off screen and it, Mike gets the information he needs to set up these truck drivers. Much like this Mike scene picks up right where we left off, you know, it even backs up a few seconds, as he said, Jimmy's plotline also picks up moments after the last episode. Certainly something has happened in these moments. Jimmy went outside and is sitting outside. He goes to get his pack of cigarettes, his old pack of cigarettes, (laughs) and he calls Francesca to give her a heads up that he's not coming back. And importantly, he pulls out a pack of matches alongside the old cigarettes that has a bail bondsman's number on it, which is very poignant. (laughs) And then we have Chuck come out, and oh man... Chuck's diatribe here is so frustrating. His ego is on full display, his I know best, his, you know, this is all gonna, you know, you're just gonna see, you gotta walk the path. It's so, he's, it's so arrogant. Even if theoretically everything that he was saying was true, 
is that really what Jimmy wants to hear right now? Is this really the way to say it to him? Yeah. You know, it just goes to show that Chuck is incredibly smart in terms of logic and laws and left brain thinking. But when it comes to emotions and handling people's feelings, he's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Even the framing and mise en scene here is perfect because Jimmy's facing one way, sitting down, and Chuck is standing over him, not even facing him face to face, doing it behind his back, lording yeah. over him. And there's a big change in Jimmy. At first, Jimmy's incredibly angry. And then when he realizes he's been tricked, he just deflates. First Chuck says, this is what's going to happen, blah, blah, blah. Talks about how the police are going to handle it. He's like, no, this is what's going to happen. You're going to die alone. Unloved. <laughs> you know, he says it nicer than that, but it, it doesn't, it, the point hits really hard and, and Chuck's body language, you can tell it really hits him. It really impacts him. His face just crumbles. The, the angle of the camera is really interesting because Jimmy's sitting on the curb. So you can't see Chuck's face when Jimmy's talking, but you can see Chuck's hands. And they're his fists are clenching really uncomfortably and rapidly. It's like he's he's restraining his emotions. It's I think that was really both good acting and good framing that they showed that. I love that scene also. It's also neat how Chuck is caught up in this moment. What's going to happen next? Where Jimmy sees this bigger picture. And Jimmy probably has to think about that a lot because of how Chuck's living his life right now or not living his life and how Jimmy's there to help him. And Jimmy has to account for this and how he lives his own life. And Chuck isn't. Chuck isn't taking into account what Jimmy's doing for him. Yeah, not at all. That's why he points out when he's telling him the story, he says, you're going to get sick again eventually and your employee's going to find you crumpled up on the floor, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. And sure enough, we find out not too long after that the previous employee that was taking care of him has been fired, you know, <laughs> predictably. Yeah. And Ernesto's been fired. And Ernesto isn't even terribly concerned about his own firing. He doesn't seem to be worried about that. He certainly, I'm sure, it bothers him on the inside, but he's immediately concerned about Jimmy, which is just goes to show what kind of person Ernesto is. Yeah. Good guy. You know, he obviously got himself into trouble, but you know, he really cares about how people feel. He's kind of the opposite of Chuck. He doesn't put the law first. He puts how people feel first. So then we get a scene with Chuck meeting with this prosecutor, Miss Kira Hay, who, by the way, wearing a yellow shirt, bright yellow shirt. Noteworthy. And he has this chat with her, and it's not really clear whether he's had this plan to get his brother disbarred from the get-go, which I tend to think, or whether he realized in the moment that he could do that. I think that it is probably his original plan. It's been a theme since the beginning of the show that Chuck really hates how Jimmy interacts with the law. He really hates all the shortcuts he takes. He hates how he doesn't take it seriously. He doesn't uphold it. Chuck really, it's almost religious to Chuck, the law. And it seems that that is something that most offends him about Jimmy's way of living and handling the law. Yeah, it would be a way to force Jimmy to take the right path. If he has this legal requirement that if he doesn't, he'll go to jail for years. I think it was his plan to put Jim in this position where he would be forced to, quote unquote, be a good person or a legal person. I feel like that plan just proves that Chuck really doesn't have Jimmy's best interest in mind and doesn't want him to be a better person. Because what, you think that Jimmy isn't going to resort to a life of crime or scamming after he loses this thing that he's put so much into? Yeah, it's the one thing he does well that's part of society that isn't, yeah. It's almost like what happens when you make something illegal. People don't stop doing it. Some people do. They just do it illegally. I think Chuck does have a ulterior motive here. I think that he, on one hand, is genuine, even if he's arrogant or misguided or inconsiderate when he wants Jimmy to 
be a better person or a legal person, you know, however that Venn diagram works. Hmm. But also, Chuck, is arrogant and that he has this pride in the legal profession and Jimmy is not worthy of it. Yeah. Jimmy is not worthy of being a lawyer. I'm a lawyer. He can't be a lawyer because I'm better than him. We learn about this out-of-town prosecutor from DDA Oakley. That's his name, the lawyer friend that Jimmy has. We've seen him in season one and two. And he's kind of a doofus guy, a little bit. He, you know, is just carrying his coffee unsafely. And <laughs> it just barges into the holding area that Jimmy's in. And just something about him. He's a little sleazy. But his facial acting was hilarious. The way he kept looking at Jimmy's food. The way his face contorted into happiness when he ate that first french fry. It was like the most glorious thing ever. <laughs> and yeah, I was with you with that coffee thing. It was like making me a little anxious. Like, he's going to spill that coffee. It's going to go everywhere. It's just going to, oh, it's going to be horrible. Is it going to fall into his briefcase? I don't know. <laughs> I kind of get the idea that he's not far from Jimmy. That he's got some screw up in his life and he's trying to straighten it all up, but he's barely keeping it together. He's in debt or he has a divorced wife and a kid he's trying to support or something is going on that he just has to do this job and he can't screw it up. He's just going to do what he's told and his life just sucks. <laughs> he needs that Davis and Maine job. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So Jimmy's trying to butter him up here with the fries and burger that he brings that he just so happens to run into him <laughs> sitting on this bench. But Jimmy is ultimately very disappointed with what he learns. Yeah, it does not go the way he wants, as we pointed out. It's not going to be him prosecuting the case or anyone he knows. He was hoping to work with someone he knew. Mm -hmm. That would make it easier. He could use his friendliness, his natural charisma to try to ease things. But it wasn't going to happen. Favors that he's done for people in the past. Favors he can do for people in the future. None of that matters for some out-of-town yeah. lawyer. And Oakley even points out that that's why they're not getting yeah. you know that yeah. His boss knows they've worked together so much. I will say, in terms of Ms. Hay meeting up with Chuck, I feel like that's a huge flaw in his plan that whoever meets up with him and comes to his house and sees how he's living is gonna doubt his story a little bit and not take too kindly to him. I wouldn't, personally. I would judge someone if they lived like that. I think it's a recurring bit of a recurring theme that's come up a few times. Is Chuck is such an amazing reputation out in the world of law, but one-on-one -on -one in these personal situations, his strange condition, his strange disease, whatever, you, whatever we call it, it definitely puts people off. They just are not used to this. Like, I gotta put my phone in a in your mailbox before I come in? You can't be under lights? Like, what the hell? It's a very strange combination of straight and narrow and bizarre. That said, she doesn't seem to have any sort of negative reaction to this. She is very professional. Yeah, I agree, I yeah, agree. I totally, yeah. Also very professional, Kim Wexler. <laughs> she slept at the office, it seems. Very disciplined, though. Set her alarm for 5.30 a.m. Goes to the gym that's across the street. You know, they have this awesome sequence of her getting ready for her day. And then she leaves to see the distinctive blue car of Ernesto. <laughs> yeah, it's like she's getting ready to start her day to do all her stuff. And nope. <laughs> Something's come up, Kim. You're not going to get to work on your stuff just yet. Mesa Verde is going to have to wait again. <laughs> Fandomedia.reviews. So Kim learns this news about Jimmy, and she immediately wants to be Jimmy's lawyer. She goes right to where she knows he's going to have a hearing that very day and tries to just be his lawyer, and he just won't have it, and the judge is not having it either. She is also by the book. Yeah, it's really neat because Jimmy it's twice has pointed out what a bad idea it is for him to represent himself. Mm -hmm. And he just really doesn't want anyone else involved, partly because he's ashamed and partly because he really 
just doesn't want, especially in Kim's case, anyone else having to put more time into this. He's already interrupted her and disrupted her life in so many ways and used up so much of your time. He really can't bear the thought of it happening even more. But of course, by the end, that's exactly where this is going. She yeah. is like, look, you need me. You gotta, you, you need my help. We're gonna do this together. Yeah, he gives her this whole long speech, uh, you know, standard Jimmy McGill spiel. Yeah. And she's just listening and listening. She just says, okay. And I think <laughs> at that moment, she's like, I'll convince him later. I He'll understand eventually. <laughs> yep, Kim won that round for sure. <laughs> yeah, it did seem like Jimmy was preparing his case. He's ready for a big argument with Kim to convince her. And she's like, okay. And he's like, hmm. Uh, okay. <laughs> and it was clever of her to reference their con job together, their Victor and Giselle personas. Cause Victor like, with a K. Yeah, yeah Victor with a K. Look, this is something, because it's something they did together. It's like their secret, you know? And so it's a, it's a way to remind him that they're a team. It was a clever way to bring him back around. I really liked how when he tells her about what the prosecution has offered, she's really happy about it and thinks this is a relief thinks it's awesome. Then he tells her it's Chuck's idea. And immediately she's like, uh-oh. Uh. Yeah, she just knows something fishy is going on. So what's his angle? That's like what's her next his game? question. Yeah, what's yeah. his game? Yeah. Visual elements. This scene where Kim convinces Jimmy that he needs her is a really, really beautiful scene because this is the same exact shot that we saw from the pilot from season one where we're first introduced to Kim with like no dialogue. Jimmy's standing outside smoking a cigarette, shadowed, silhouetted. Kim comes up, wordlessly grabs the cigarette, takes a drag, and they just stand there in company. And in this episode, Jimmy's out there smoking a cigarette, stressed out. She comes up, takes this drag, and immediately goes, how old is this? <laughs> yeah, that was really funny. Found him in the glove compartment. <laughs> <laughs> in the opening sequence, we discussed a bit, but it's just beautiful. You get all these amazing shots of the desert, which is something we get a lot of in Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. It's mm -hmm. in New Mexico, so there's a lot of desert, a lot of mountains, and a lot of opportunities for great vistas like this. It is a neat difference this show has from a lot of other shows that are in New York or L.A. or whatever. We have a, just a different landscape, different scenery. Yeah, these scenes of being out in the desert and pulling off these, like, drug runs or stopping drug dealers. Like, you can't imagine that in New York. There's, like, yeah. people everywhere. <laughs> you know, you need just empty spaces where there's nobody. Yeah, I love all of these shots of desert roads and the blue sky that they give us in this show. I thought that this opening sequence was definitely one of the most outstanding ones that they've had, especially with that one shot of the shoes descent from below. I really liked the new shoes when they were first tossed up there, how bright and red. Like, the sh those were very particular shoes. Those were not boring, plain tennis shoes. Those were red and yeah. yellow and bright and against that backdrop of the desert that really stood out. Another thing they've captured a few times in these desert moments is the heat rising off the asphalt roads, uh, the sun's distortion of your view right above the road because of the heat. Yeah, it's like this hazy, wavy effect that mm -hmm. it's always a trip to me when I see it in real life. <laughs> One very minor thing that's maybe not a visual effect because they didn't actually focus on it, but we got to see it. I'm, I'm referring to the paint job inside their office. And I thought it was really interesting that they have Francesca talking about how she repaired the line she touched in between it up. the yeah. two and it's kind of like fixing the damage between kim and jimmy like there's a lot of strain on their relationship and there's a lot of strain going on here in general and i think maybe the fraying of the color lines between the two maybe is symbolic of that and maybe yeah maybe francesca is a bit of an intermediary here 
another visual thing that they have in Jimmy and Kim's office, I should just call them Kimmy, <laughs> is this reflective ceiling that they have. And I just think it's very striking. I've wondered a bit about how much thought they put into wanting to have a reflective ceiling or if that was just space that they got and they were like, this is awesome and perfect. Or if they were seeking that out. There's also Jonathan Banks' facial acting when he's confronted with Gus. Just his, yeah, and then his <laughs> accepting of being done with Hector. Of course, he changes his mind about three seconds later, but his begrudging, like, sort of half nod that gradually builds into a full nod, it really, it's a really slow-building nod, and, and then he just changes his mind. <laughs> it's like his eyes are going to go into the back of his head <laughs> with how much he wants to roll his eyes. He really doesn't. <laughs> that moment when Gus asked him, why'd you go back? You know, most of you got the money, you, you got your revenge, why'd you go back for more? And it was a solid ten seconds of Mike looking at him, looking away, and looking back up. And even though he didn't say anything, he said so much, and Gus even figured it out. He says, Hector killed an innocent person, didn't he? And then again, Mike just blank stare, looks at him, looks away, looks back, and finally says he wasn't in the game, you know. But he said so much without saying anything. That facial acting was really good there. He didn't want to admit, just like Gus didn't want to admit that Hector Salamanca is a point of revenge because that's a weakness, like Ashea said earlier. It's the same thing. Mike doesn't want to show his true motivations. He doesn't want to show weakness, which is gangsters are going to see this kind of thing as a weakness. Mike's probably also plotting out. He's probably thinking... How will Gus react to this? Will he be on board? What kind of man is Gus? You know, he's he's sizing things up, trying to think about what answer he should give here. Yeah, and I guess he just either realized that I don't have a good fake answer to give here, or may as well just admit it, because it seems like he's got me figured out already. He's probably also processing how Gus has behaved so far, and is recognizing he's probably with me here. Gus probably knows not to mix up people who aren't in the game. He wouldn't be the successful otherwise, right? So. Mm. Yeah, maybe. We've also got two, I don't know, flashy sequences here. Typical Better Call Saul sequences where we see a lot happening. We see Jimmy being booked. We see the tiny details, the shoes coming off, the socks coming off, the sandals coming on. The red tie coming off. Yeah, we see all of that, which are just really great sequences but i think my favorite was kim's morning sequence which is like sped up a little bit each action is a little bit faster and has this perfect music going along with it but i think my favorite moment of the morning sequence was how when she hits the alarm clock it's really subtle but it goes off she reaches for it misses it it zooms a little closer she reaches for it and misses it it zooms a little closer and then she hits it and it zooms a little closer and it's just these fast cuts this interesting editing style that i really like there was another neat little camera moment when they're taking the fingerprints it was like the camera was underneath the fingerprinting thing which obviously isn't transparent even but it was just a neat shot to give us of this processing that jim is going through Oh, yeah, I know a shot Aziz will like. Definitely. I love seeing that coffee get made. (laughs) Every time I see coffee being made on TV, it makes me want coffee. Even if I'm drinking coffee at the time, which I was, (laughs) it's like, "Ah, I want some coffee. So I'll reach to my right and take a sip of the coffee that I already have sitting here. (laughs) A shot a lot of people probably didn't like was Kim putting the visine into her eyes. (laughs) Yeah, but you can see it's 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 one of those things where you're like, oh, poor Kim, she's working so hard. So we talked a bit about Oakley and Jimmy's conversation on the bench already, but one thing I wanted to point out was a visual thing that they did, which is that it stays on Oakley sitting on the bench. It stays on the same angle, there's no changes, Jimmy comes up, he sits down, they start this conversation, the lawyer says, good luck with that, and it cuts to this other angle of Jimmy's reaction, which shows you how this throws him for a loop. 
So again, another thing we particularly like to look at in this show is the colors that they use and the symbols that they have. And I can't help but wonder if it wasn't pointed out to me specifically if I ever would have noticed it. Knowing it, I can't imagine not noticing it. It's so pervasive and I almost want to say obvious. Whenever there's something shady or criminal or negative going on, there's red there. And these red shoes that Mike is using for this heist or heistish activity he's using really stand out. Even in the opening sequence, we all took note of the faded reddish color of them. Stop signs are naturally red anyway, but they still seem to be highlighting this spot where something's about to go down. Red is all around. Meanwhile, in the Kim sequence, we see her blue office, and then she picks up her big blue duffel bag. Yep. and Her blue outfit, usually. She's always cast in blue light and blue clothes, blue rooms. I feel like we're like the fashion police for Ernesto, because we <laughs> always talk about his clothes in particular. He has the most variation, I think. He's yep. got these checkered shirts that he wears, so he can have a lot of multicolored action. And this one, it's probably his worst look yet, but... <laughs> It was a distinct yellow and red checkered shirt with a multicolored tie with a lot of yellow and red, but also some blue. Yeah, not much, but probably the least blue. At least yeah. this season. There was, I thought I saw a little purple in it, too. Maybe uh, a dark mix of red indigo. And blue. Yeah, yeah. But he definitely seems beyond the line. He's default good. The car he owns is blue, but he's getting mixed up with Jimmy. He's getting mixed up with Chuck's conniving. So One color I'm starting to wonder about. Green is usually lumped in with the cool colors, and I think the makers of the show even mention green as a color that the more lawful characters will have. But there have been a couple times where green was featured in a way that didn't seem to line up with that. The truck that the guy was driving that Mike was following was green. And in this episode, the doctor, who at first seems good, but then we see he's got something shady going on, he was wearing green, and his sign out front was green too. So I'm starting to wonder if green may represent something else, like success or a cover for badness. or I think it might just be a cover for badness, specifically because Chuck is wearing, when he talks to Jimmy and he is kind of telling him how things are going to be, he's in like a green yeah, sweater, a dark true. green sweater, and it's blue underneath though. And blue and yellow are, green right so if if you mix lawfulness and mixed lawfulness you maybe get this kind of interim color the sort of in-between state a few times i've also wondered if yellow is maybe a uh, intermediate or transition color someone who's on the edge you know someone who's undecided yeah we see oakley for instance in this yellowish tie this kind of pale yellow tie when he's eating lunch with jimmy and jimmy's in a light blue tie and as we pointed out the lawyer from out of town the prosecutor who meets with chuck was wearing yellow and she was we're willing to deal with Chuck. She was said to be tough but fair, but she also seemed to have a bit of an agenda. She wanted to hold Jimmy to a higher standard because he's an officer of the law. She wanted to, you know, prosecute this pretty thoroughly, etc. But she was also willing to deal. If she was wearing a red shirt, I would have different flags going off than a yellow one. And if she was in a blue shirt, I would be like, Jimmy, don't even try. Yeah. Audio elements. So the two montages that we have of Jimmy's arrest and Kim's morning routine both have very notable songs attached to them that I thought fit the montages really well. Kim's song was upbeat, really positive, and then it just stops when she sees Ernesto, which really <laughs> fit the scene really well. That song is Alfonso Muscadunder by Todd Turgeon. I probably didn't say that right, but you know, I'm doing my best. <laughs> and I really like that song, but I think the song I liked even more from this episode was the song that they had when Jimmy was getting arrested. 
Hurry Sundown by Little Richard. That's definitely going on my Spotify playlist because it'll make me think of Jimmy's arrest. Two thumbs up. I also like the, a well-timed moment just as the horns kick in from that song, just as Jimmy's foot stomps out that cigarette. I thought oh, that, that was a well-timed great. moment, yeah. And of course, the other really important audio element was the gunshots Yeah, in the scene with Mike and the two drivers of the drug truck. Final thoughts. So let's get into our favorite moments. Cool. I kind of already got into mine already. It will come as no surprise that my favorite was Kim's morning sequence montage type thing. But I also really have to give credit to that opening sequence with the shoes for being stunning and getting your mind racing about what it could mean and coming together so perfectly. What about you, Sean? My favorite moment was definitely the interaction between Chuck and Jimmy at the beginning. And watching it a second time, I even had a new thought on it. It's almost eerie. I don't know if I'm reading something in or if they did this by design, but I feel like almost every single thing that Chuck told Jimmy there, Jimmy could have said to Chuck. He said something along the lines of, I'm not going to exact quote this, but he said something along the lines of, you need to make a change in your life before you destroy yourself or someone else. Mm. Jimmy could have been saying that to Chuck, Yeah, right? Uh, it was, he said something like, you need to go down a different path. The, <laughs> the path you're on isn't a good one. You know, almost everything Chuck was telling Jimmy, I felt like Jimmy could have been telling Chuck. He's maybe long in the past. <laughs> he should have told yeah. him that 20 years ago yeah. before he lost his wife. Yeah. And- <laughs> And I thought it was a really kind of a sad moment that I, I couldn't let go of through the episode when he's like, no, let me tell you what's really going to happen. Yeah, when, die when alone. Was... you're right, Chuck losing his wind. energy and his emotion is wind. Yeah, that's a good point. Having all the wind sucked out of him was really just really telling because he's always yeah. so animated and passionate when dealing with Chuck. I think that Chuck must have realized that on the subconscious level. He's like, whoa, something's different here. Or maybe he didn't accept it. Maybe he, maybe the warning bells went off in his head, but Chuck is Chuck, so he just plows forward. <laughs> You know, something else, sorry, this is a little distraction from our favorite moment bit here, but I wanted to say this. I wonder if Kim will hire Ernesto as a paralegal. I wonder if that's the direction the show might go. Seems like that'd be a mistake. Ernesto's not very good. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we talked about this before we recorded and guessed whether Ernesto had legal experience. We know he worked in the mailroom, and certainly a lot of people that work in a mailroom might also be going to law school. But he also didn't seem very familiar with the law when he was not sure if he should talk about this. Another thing I wonder a little bit about is if that was some foreshadowing. If Chuck is going to end up in the hospital at some point, he wasn't present in Breaking Bad. I wonder if Marie will be his nurse, or maybe <laughs> he'll be in the hospital at the same time as Hector, or something like that. Oh, wow, that'd be amazing. <laughs> They're in wheelchairs together. <laughs> <laughs> so, what was your favorite moment, Aziz? Well, I usually like to pick something different than what you guys have said. We usually like to pick three different favorite moments, but I, it, it's got to be the shoes for me. I just <laughs> love that whole plot line, the whole. Aziz is a shoeaholic. (laughs) (laughs) The way they told that whole story visually, and you just wonder what the heck is going on, and it just was really well done how each piece falls into place without anything to even be explained. You finally figure out what's happening purely visually. I thought that's just really awesome, and such a culmination of what the show does in general with its visual storytelling. Something so unusual and baffling suddenly makes perfect sense. Yeah, yeah it's exactly. Really good, yeah, yeah it's, that's why it's well done. It's like it makes no sense, and then all of a sudden it makes perfect sense. And it has great symbolic meaning to it. What with, you know, Regalo Helado, Salamanca being out of the way, and most Poyos Hermanos taking the route, coming through. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very true. Out with the old, in with the... Chicken. <laughs> and with the shoe. Out with the- <laughs> <laughs> oh, there you go. That's out it, with the ice it. cream. Out with the cold, in with the shoe. (laughs) 
fandomedia.reviews. All right, that's it for this week. We're signing off. I'm Fanlin. I'm Fanlin. And I'm Miguel. 